Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and as always, we have a special guest. And today, our special guest, our very special guest, is Ryan Pavel from the Warrior Scholar Project. Ryan, I'm so glad to have you here today. Luke, thanks so much for having me here. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Ryan, um, sir, can you tell us a couple a couple sentences about yourself, sir? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm the as you as you mentioned there, I'm the, the CEO of Warrior Scholar Project. I served as an enlisted Marine 2005 to 2010. Um, had my some interesting experiences when I was transitioning out, and uh, I, I'm privileged to be able to work with students that are in that transition period and getting to, getting acclimated to college for all day every day is my full time job now. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it, and I can I can cite with that so much. Uh, that's why I do my job, and that's why I've done the research in this area. And uh, I had honestly such a bad experience in my my first uh, few days in college. Really set the pace, and uh, it, I you know, and then I came to find out that I was not alone. <laughs> so. That's one of the things when I first found out about your project that I was very interested in, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say too much because I, I want I want you to tell everybody about it. But I tell you uh, what really, really stuck with me uh, a couple years ago, I saw a promo and, you know, they were talking about the different schools that people were, were going to do their, you know, they call it an academic boot camp. And uh, one, you know, one gentleman cited that, well, he was the first person in his family that was going to go to college, you know, and I thought about that. I mean, like my father only has uh, eighth grade education and uh, he's, I'm literally like the grandson of a sh sharecropper, you know, from Appalachia. Hmm. So as I'm talking to people through this series, I'm finding that that's a common theme, you know, the bootstrap type of theme is very common among veteran population. And I find it so amazing that you have this summer program. And what I like about it is, you know, you're equipping people for success mm -hmm. and taking that fear of the unknown out, uh, you know, kind of leveling the playing field, uh, building up that confidence, mm -hmm. you know, which I think if you look at, if, along the research, uh, that is the one thing that all these veterans are coming out and they're capable. They're proving that they're capable. They're out testing their peers. They're picking, you know, challenging yep. majors, but it's that, that limiting kind of self box. I, I look, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, if you were to ask me to describe what we're all about, right, I would just record what you said and I would, I would play it back <laughs> to you. Right. Because I think, I think you're, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Right. I mean, confidence is an enormous part. Uh, there's a confidence gap. Right. And I think there's some balancing of confidences, which, you know, I, um, I think is, uh, is an interesting way for people to be able to 
come down a little bit from being however they experienced the military and they were really masters of their crafts to be able to say, okay, now I'm going into something new, right? There's some humility right there, but also to see yourself of, okay, I do actually have what it takes to succeed in this new environment. So striking the right balance there can be, can be tricky. Um, and you mentioned there as well, it was a, it was a, it was a, a I think a, a very good introduction to a lot of what we talk about with Warrior Scholar Project, both as the staff and with our students, the first generation side is really important, right? I mean, over 50% of student veterans are first gen, right? Our population each year is over 50% as well. Uh, and I think that there are some, there can be unique challenges in that. You know, I'm, I myself am, uh, come from, uh, my, my father was a, a medical doctor. Um, my mom had her master's. So I come from um, sort of an opposite side of it. And part of my own uh, challenge was actually that there was such a strong pull towards college that I felt some need to, uh, to, to make my own path, right. To actually go a different way to, to enlist instead of going directly into that. And I mean, lo and behold, I ended up getting a, a graduate degree. So maybe it was just, it was in the cards, but, but I do think that, um, you know, speaking to the fact that people have different experiences and different challenges, depending on their backgrounds. Um, and it's not necessarily a one size fits all, um, when you make this transition or we're all about being intentional and about helping people make the right choices for their background and for their interest and building that confidence. It's beautiful. That's, that's awesome. And, and, it, you know, I love in this series, we've been talking to people about some, you know, typically falls in the area of research, but to see you have a program where you're putting things into action and improving people's lives oh, yeah. immediately and in a pragmatic way is, is very exciting, very exciting. So let me ask you, Ryan, you know, with your experience in the Marine Corps, with your experience transitioning yourself and, you know, going through higher education, uh, both your undergraduate and graduate, and now working to help others and, and interpret this however you like. But um, what do you see that veterans are doing well in higher education? Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that you, you know, I like that you're always, you're always kicking off interviews with this question. I think that um, having an opportunity to listen to some of your previous guests and thinking about how people view this landscape, it's, it's important to start with the, with the positives, right? To see both sides of the coin, because right. I know the next question that's coming too, right? Which is an important <laughs> one. Um, but I think those two things, so my answers will go hand in hand. I think the things that, that veterans, student veterans by and large are doing well is finding ways to support each other, right? So um, the community, there's really robust ties. Um, and I think that finding ways to be able to leverage your experience in the military, your connections, whether it's folks from your prior units or whether it's just somebody that you never served with, somebody from a totally different branch of service that had a radically different experience, there still is this shared sense of what you accomplished, right? And what you did, what it meant to join the military and finding ways to be able to leverage those connections um, into success in higher ed. Um, is really important, right? So, you know, tribe, Sebastian Younger's tribe is, is one of the most commonly cited and, and commonly read books, right? And I think that there's a reason for that because it resonates with, with veterans that, that, that read this, right? In the sense of, man, when, when you get out, you realize how much of a tribe you had and trying to find your people afterwards right. is not, again, not a one size fits all, right? But I do think that by and large, um, uh, throughout my entire time um, that I've been a veteran, right? Since I, since I left active duty in, in 2010, um, I've really seen that come true over and over and over again, that veterans are really looking out for each other on campus. That's actually a big part of my story as well, um, which I'm happy to you know, talk about it if, if it's of interest, right? But this idea that when I got out, I didn't anticipate having a close connection to the veteran community, right? I, I actually like deliberately um, said to myself, okay, now I'm going to be a college student. This is another chapter. Right. Lo and behold, the people that I had the closest connection to other student veterans, right? Who could have seen that coming? Right. Um, and so I really relied on those relationships to be able to get me through. And now I view a lot of my work 
um, the work of the people that I that I you know that that I'm fortunate to call my colleagues. Um, all of us are really working towards facilitating that so that veterans are continually supporting each other. You know, one other thing on this is. Um, I think this extends outside of the higher ed context as well, right? Veterans look out for, for other veterans in a lot of different ways in the right. transition. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think that that's a lot of what's given birth to the tens of thousands of veteran service organizations that we have, um, right? Many of which I think are very well-intentioned, but, you know, don't necessarily have a whole lot behind them, but right, but the, the intentionality there does matter, right? A lot of people want to be able to help um, and they feel that if they achieve some success in some area, they want to be able to pay that forward. I love that atmosphere, right? There's so much good that can come from that. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, you're so right. It, it does permeate through about, throughout this whole experience, right? And it's not just in higher ed, it's everywhere. And I love that you give the nonprofit example because you know, I would say prior to like when you enlisted, there weren't a, there weren't a whole lot of nonprofits out there, uh, particularly geared towards veterans, maybe a handful. And now, like you said, and and it and a lot of the driving force is coming from, hey, you know, I have done something positive. Now I want to help someone else. And absolutely, you know, it's 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 amazing how that kind of permeates like every single layer of of this experience good, bad, indifferent, it's, it's mm -hmm. there, you know, mm -hmm. it's there. Awesome. So Ryan, now the other question. All right. <laughs> so what would you see in higher ed that, uh, that veterans can improve? Yeah. So I think we actually, we spoke about it a little bit in our, you know, and sort of riffing in the intro and, uh, and talking about the confidence side, right? Because I think that there is, um, there's a, there's a chronic underselling of, you know, of, of one's capabilities. And we see this all the time, um, you know, the benefits are there, right? Veterans have the capacity um, to leverage a tremendously, uh, the, the post of GI Bill, VR&E, right? All of these benefits for, for many, many um, service members and, and veterans are, are there. Um, schools are in many senses clamoring for more veterans on campus, right? Even schools at the, you know, at the, at the top, right? Even the, the, the schools before that in some ways were much slower to be able to really tap into veterans and to be able to view veterans as a, as a source that they should be recruiting. Right. Um, so, you know, the benefits are there, the schools want veterans there. You need the veterans to still have the confidence to actually believe in themselves to apply there. Um, and I think that that's actually something that, uh, speaking broadly across the veteran community, I still think that there's, um, really a chronic underselling of, of, of the capabilities. Right. Um, and, you know, you take community college, for example, I mean, community colleges are particularly interesting in the past year, um, where, um, the, there was a lot of people thought there was going to be an opportunity for community colleges to really excel during the pandemic. Um, and by and large, they didn't, right? Enrollment has plummeted. And these are many of these are community colleges that are already resource strapped. Many veterans are at the community college level. And so now they're at institutions that have even fewer resources. Um, and the attrition rates for student veterans are even higher than the traditional student rate um, uh, for, for community college students, um, which is in contrast to the four-year data, right? Where, where student veterans are outperforming their peers. So I think that um, we as an organization um, are really interested in finding ways to be able to intervene when student veterans need it most, right? Um, and, and I say student veterans, but this even includes people that aren't yet technically student veterans that are a few steps earlier in the process, right? If right. somebody has that inclination towards higher education and they're on active duty and they're thinking, okay, 
I'm getting out. I want to know what to do with it, right? We want to be able to talk to them at that point so that they're ready to hit the ground from day one, right? So it's not a matter of kind of like a couple semesters where, uh, right? I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that again, you know? Right. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think that that's really um, across the board, this area of, of seeing themselves as capable of leveraging these benefits, leveraging all these schools that want to be able to accept them and actually applying them and, and seeing what they're capable of there. Wow. I love that. And I love the idea that, that you're reaching out to them, uh, you know, before before it's time to get out and, and make that transition uh, and plan. And I think that planning is also one of those things that is just going to lend to more confidence. You know, if they have an idea like, hey, I'm going to go to the Warrior Scholar Project and I'm going to spend my summer at this location and I, I know I'm going to be uh, hitting the books. And I think that alone could be one of those pieces that just skyrocket someone, you know. Right. right. Totally. Awesome. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. So, you know, you mentioned you're, you had a learned family. But then here comes Ryan, the black sheep, going to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, much to their chagrin. Yeah, that, was, uh, that was fun. So, so what motivated you to join the military? And, and tell us a little bit about, about your time in when you were in the military. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I think that the... Um, you know, it is it is interesting just reflecting on uh, on on the fact that so I was, was I had a, a very comfortable upbringing, right? And so it was uh, I, I had um, the opportunity to be able to go directly to college, and had certainly good examples, positive family examples in terms of what what that can lead to, right? Um, and so on, you know, on both sides of my family, and so it was very it was very fortunate. And I was, I was a very apathetic high schooler, right? I think I figured out pretty early on that I could not do a lot of work and I could get by and I would be all right. You know, I could get, a, I could get an acceptable GPA without really putting in the work. And so, you know, again, I know that that, uh, that led to some frustrations in particular uh, from, my, from my father. But, you know, uh, I think that that's actually an important thing for me to reflect on now, right? Because my, the, my, my life's work at this point really is in preparing people for higher education. And it's helpful for me to think back about the evolution of my own thought process on this, where for a while it was like, well, I should go to college, but why? Right. And I think that that's actually a really interesting question that a lot of high schoolers and indeed even a lot of veterans don't really stop to evaluate the why of why this should be the next step. And I don't necessarily think that it has to be the next step for everybody, right? Which may seem at odds with the mission of our organization, but I actually think that, you know, um, for example, if somebody goes through one of our programs and they go through a week long academic boot camp, um, at a phenomenal institution, they can get a lot out of it. The, the confidence, the skills, all of these things, thinking about the psychological aspects of the transition, they can apply that to any number of different routes, right? For many of them, for most of them, higher education is the way they want to go and we will support them. That's exactly, that's great, right? We don't want people to self-select out, but if somebody evaluates their options and says, no, actually, I, I don't want to go that route, we still, there's still a success, right? There's still like that so long as it's a, an informed decision, right? right, right. Um, and so, you know, I think that for me, going back to my own personal version of this, you know, when I was in high school, I was going to go to college. And I think that, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a big part of the reason why I actually ended up enlisting I hope my, well, my, my, my torts professors listen to this because he would disagree with my description of it, but the proximate cause, right? Like I think about like the re the actual reason why I decided not to go was because I didn't get accepted to the college that I really wanted to go to. Right. So I think had I gotten accepted to that college, which is where most of my friends were going the big state school in Illinois, university of Illinois, I think I probably would have gone. And I think my life would have taken a very different route. Um, and I didn't, 
um, I got accepted to other colleges, but I, you know, I wasn't as, I wasn't as, as motivated for there. And, um, uh, so I think that was actually like the reason if I'm really being honest and really interrogating the reason that I, the reason that I enlisted, um, there are a lot of other things, right? So this was 2004 when I was, when I first started talking to a recruiter. And so obviously there's a strong sense of nationalism, of patriotism, of, you know, wanting to find ways to be able to support your country. That was certainly a part of it, right? This idea of service um, and, and really thinking that I could do something bigger than myself. Um, wanted to do something that was totally of my own merits, right? Um, I, you know, the, the, the folks that I had spoken to who were, you know, who, who had enlisted, you know, learning that it doesn't, your background doesn't really matter, right? Either you succeed or you fail, right? Either you can do the thing and you're, you're it's, in, in some ways it's boot camp. I think can be very merry, can be a meritocracy, right? Which is good in the sense that you can prove yourself. And if you succeed, it's because you did good things. Not always, right? Of course, and things get more complicated later on, but, right. um, but I like that aspect. Um, and so I think part of that was proving it to myself. Part of it was the patriotism and what in the aspect of service but all of that to say I, I honestly don't think that I would have enlisted had I been admitted to my first choice college and you know that's an interesting point of reflection so yeah. this is great though I love that answer because this is the first time in this show that I've heard that so so it was like this school or nothing or I'm going to yeah. join the big green machine yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. fighting a lion eye or nothing that's right that's right. Yeah. I love that. Maybe, yeah. maybe we can get them to sponsor our next show after that. <laughs> um, but that's awesome. So, so then that's what motivated you. And, and of course, you know, a handful of other things. And I think, you know, just the time period in which you enlisted, somebody would be very amiss not to recognize that, you know, uh, it has to be a factor. Right. So tell us about uh, what you did in the military and, and what your MOS was. And Sure, sure. Yeah, so I was, um, so once I decided that I was going to enlist, I was actually 17. So my parents had to sign the, uh, sign, sign the waiver. So that was, that was a fun process of, you know, but they, they agreed to as soon as, you know, they, they uh, asked me to wait on it for a month. And if I still felt compelled after that to go, then they would sign and they did while I was still a senior in high school. Um, so um, throughout the process, um, when I was in the delayed entry program, there, uh, I originally enlisted under public affairs, and then there was a, an option for um, cryptologic linguists that they were looking for. Um, and so they, you know, took the D-Lab, um, most confusing test I've ever taken. I had no idea what anything was. Um, apparently, I scored high enough that, you know, that they said, okay, it can be a linguist. All right, I'll take your word for it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so after, um, after boot camp and, and, uh, NMCT, I went and spent uh, about a year and a half at the defense language Institute, um, uh, and learned Arabic. So, um, uh, that was my, um, you know, that's, that's the direction that I was, that I was heading in and spent about three years as a, as an Arabic linguist after that, um, it's five year contract because the schooling goes over a year. So they add that year into the, uh, the four-year enlistment contract. And yeah, then was, um, uh, my home base was, uh, was Camp Lejeune. So, you know, got to love that going from Monterey, California. Then I spent some time in, in San Antonio, Texas, and then, you know, out to, out to Camp Lejeune, Jacksonville, Actionville, USA over there. So, and then deployed a couple of times back and forth with, uh, with second radio battalion uh, between 2008 and 2010, um, working as a, as a, as a translator basically, um, for those deployments. Okay. Okay. So as a translator, did you ever, were you on the radio? I'm just curious. I'm just curious how hard it would be to, uh, you know, understand a language in maybe a dialect that maybe you were taught, maybe you weren't taught, and be on a piece of issued gear trying to hear someone. 
Yeah, yeah. So definitely, um, definitely not taught the dialect. I, I would say is that you're you're right to point out that dialects complicate things. So, yeah, right. So I mean, the, the the basic version is that when you're when you're at the Defense Language Institute and what they teach at most like undergraduate levels for Arabic, the starting point is Modern Standard Arabic. Okay. There's so some sometimes people compare this to like the Queen's English. There's the, the comparison kind of breaks down, but dialects are um, more differentiated than ways that people would speak. English in various parts of the United States or in the English speaking world. But the idea is that if you learn this modern standard Arabic, you can learn component dialects, you can learn the, the, the dialects from that common understanding. And so, you know, you spend about a year and a half in this version comes out, it turns out that no one on the ground actually speaks modern standard Arabic. And they look at you like you have a third eye if you try and speak to them in that in that uh, in that uh, in that version of it. So you go through this month-long crash course of, uh, of Iraqi dialect, but even that, right, is only speaking broadly about Iraqi dialects. So it really takes a few months in country to, to actually understand the, the specific area that you're translating in. Um, you know, the, the bulk of my work was really, um, you know, behind the scenes translation. And so being able to do, you know, translate whatever, whatever comes in, whatever's, whatever's in, on your desk and you, you, you spit it out the other way and you work with your, the other people that are actually doing the, the cryptography, um, you know, to be able to, uh, to figure out what, what you should be translating. So, um, that was most of the work. I think that the more interesting components were when we would be able to go out and, you know, and work with, um, you know, the other, sometimes they would, they would put us with other units where there were in-country translators and we'd be there. They didn't know that we spoke Arabic to kind of, you know, check in and, and make sure that everything, all the translations are good right. to go. Um, sometimes the missions were interesting when you would have, um, uh, you would have translators that, you know, couldn't be there for whatever reason. And so you'd actually be acting as a one-to-one -one interpreter. I mean, what's funny is that there's actually quite a big delta in the skill set between translating at a desk and doing one-to-one -one live interpretation, right? And so I remember this very clearly that the, the first time was, um, we were translating for, uh, for a HET team um, uh, with a, a, a friendly Iraqi police officer. And I couldn't remember the word for, for list, right? I was just like, I had to say like the Arabic word for list is like, so I was describing it in Arabic, it was just kind of like a piece of paper with, with names on it, right? And, you know, this is all comma, like that's the word. And so now I'll never forget that word because I was so right. deeply embarrassed, right? This whole conversation, this whole negotiation is depending on me. So, you know, the bulk of it was, was the, the more behind the scenes stuff, but the interesting ones were when we got to go out in the field and actually, you know, and actually do the translations. That's awesome. That's super awesome. And, and right, I can imagine, uh, like you said, doing it at the desk, I'm sure, you know, you're thinking about word choice, and should, you know, should I write this? Should I, so you've got a little time. But right. when you're in a situation like you just described, it's like, okay, I got to do this, and I got to do it now. Right, that's, right. That's exciting. I'm, that's exciting to hear about. I'm sure it was frustrating for you at the time. <laughs> it was, it was, but you learn, you know, that's, that's part of the process of, of interacting with people. And I think there's actually a parallel to, I think, you know, on the education side, there's a difference between learning something in a classroom and there's, di there's different ways to apply it. And you, there's always that gap when you're trying to identify, you know, how do I take these things that I know in theory, right. Or that I've, that I've studied and how do I actually apply this to the real world context? So I think that that's a, a perfect example of, of a challenge that everybody's faced in, you know, in, in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you, say, so, you know, you, you deploy a few times. Um, what, you know, after you deploy a few times, and I'm sure using your skill set every time you come back to Camp Lejeune, Gloriful, Glory Jacksonville, and uh, what, do, do you have time, like, in between a deployment to where you get out of the military, or was that kind of run together? 
what did that what did that time after you deployed look like for you? Yeah, so um, it's different between the two times that I came back. Um, the the radio battalions um, had a waiver for the dwell time for two to one dwell time. So our cycle was seven months on, five months off, and then seven months um, on. So the time in between deployments was was relatively you know hectic in terms of trying to get readjusted back home, and then um, you know doing training and whatever other exercises they wanted us to do to basically gear up to deploy again. Right. Um, the second time I came back. Um, we got back in, in February 2010, uh, and uh, I, I actually started terminal leave in early July. Um, and that was a pretty wonderful period of life in the sense that there was um, there were there were few obligations. Um, but you know, there's a, I, we, a few friends and I rented a beach house. One of the best things about Jacksonville is that real estate on the, on the beach is quite cheap. So we could, you know, get a number of us that put in for it and got, a, got ourselves a little beach house that we lived in for a few months. Um, you know, got every time we got off work, we'd come home and go straight to the beach. And there was a, there, there was actually a pretty good way to decompress after, um, after a deployment before, you know, the challenges of, of college and of, of post-transition, um, you know, really, really set in. So I actually remember, um, one of my conversations with my, with my dad at that time, who said, you know, life will never be, um, you know, like enjoy, enjoy this period because right. this is rare. Um, Don't you know, get up. Uh, uh, yeah, I was a single guy, you know, like it was just, there was everything, you know, uh, everything is, is taken care of, um, you know, at that point. So it was, it was actually kind of a, a special time for me to, for me to reflect on. And then I, I got out, like I said, in, in July of 2010, um, and I was on my way to University of Michigan. So I, there wasn't a whole lot of, of gap because I showed up um, a couple of weeks later to start orientation um, as an undergrad at, at, at University of Michigan. Uh, so very little period to actually kind of decompress between those two things, even though my time at those last few months, as I was describing, were some aspect of decompression, it really right. still was military life, you know, right. so suddenly it was a radically different environment when I was on campus. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, what is it about the the draw that so when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was in Camp Lejeune also, and uh, I had absolutely no plans whatsoever. Uh, and at the time, I had this very awesome green Ford Tour station wagon. Uh, nice. And I lived in it for a little over a week uh, <laughs> down the road in Wrightsville Beach. And uh, I slept nice. in the back of the, uh, in the, I slept in the back and I took showers in with my bathing suit on in the outdoor beach showers. And it wasn't until like the third night that the cops told me when I was sleeping <laughs> in the parking lot, like, you can't do this anymore. Then I was like, okay, I, I should probably, I should probably get on with my life. <laughs> right. Right. I like, I mean, but look, there's, there's something about that. Yeah. We were, we were down in surf city. Um, that was where we were able to get, you know, okay. so not, not too far away there. That was, um, you know, right, right on the, right on the beach there. And yeah, I think everybody just kind of embraces that. That really is the, the hidden value to, uh, you know, to, to, to Camp Lejeune is, is that's all right there. You should, don't go North to Jacksonville, right? Go, go South, go right. past Needs Ferry and, and get down there and, and then life can be good down there. So I'm, I'm glad you had a similar good experience out there. So. I think, you know what it is? I think it's just, we're at this point where it's like, you're free, you know? Right. So you're just like, okay, well, I'm going to go. Right. If, if I was on vacation, I'd go to the beach. So why don't I go to the beach? I, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So, yeah. so you had this short period before you start University of Michigan. 
Right. And so you're making, you're making the double transition, right? Back to civilian life, which is slower than military life. And then on to campus, which is slower than civilian life. Right. So, so what was that like when you, you know, you first arrived to the University of Michigan and uh, tell us, tell us about what that was like. Did you know your major? Did you have an idea what you wanted to study? Yeah. So it was, um, I, I think it was, it was an important period of life um, in the sense that I figured out a lot about myself when I was there, right? Um, it, was, it was an important time for me to evaluate what I wanted out of life, what I wanted out of education, what I had, what I was taking out of my military experience, regardless whether or not I wanted that to be a part of, part of my future. Right. Um, you know, I'll, one of the thing is, you know, Michigan for me, the, the way that I went about finding that was um, quite literally Googling on my second deployment, um, Arabic college and veterans, right? And I just applied to whatever schools came up, right? Not an informed decision-making process, right? And so <laughs> I was really fortunate through that very haphazard process that I was able to find my way to an institution like Michigan, right? That actually ended up being really good for me. Not only is it a great public institution, flagship institution in Michigan, but also, um, you know, I met really good people. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, I think that that's enough serendipitous is if it's necessarily to that level, but um, I'm fortunate, right? Um, uh, I, I think that that Google search could have led me many other ways. And I think that this is actually a problem for a lot of transitioning veterans in the sense of how you do, how you go about college search. Um, there is, um, there are, there are many folks that get get search results that lead them to institutions that aren't actually really going to be beneficial for them. Right. I guess right. it's probably the most diplomatic way that I could diplomatic way that I could say it. And I think that's only gotten worse. Um, there's, this is the, the flip side to how incredible the, the post 9-11 GI Bill benefits are, right. That there's some institutions that I think have the predatory institutions and some moves that were making being made there, which I think are important closing that 90, 10 loophole, et cetera, but um, it still is a problem. Right. And so how do you really actually, funnel students, not funnel, but how do you um, help them make intentional decisions that are in the, in their best interest in that transition? So I was all this to say, I think I was, I was relatively lucky. Um, and also I, I, I think it's important to point out the, the bumps in the road. Um, and so, you know, I didn't get admitted to Michigan the first time that I applied. Um, and so they, they actually um, rejected me and it was the first of the schools that I had applied to that rejected me. Um, and so I called them, there was a number at the bottom, you know, for their admissions office. And I called and, and just asked it, Hey, I have a few live applications. Is there anything I could do to, um, you know, to improve those in the interim? Um, and I spoke to somebody that was very helpful that, you know, had reviewed my application and she talked about the things that were good on there and the things that I needed to improve on. And, it turns out I just hadn't been a student for a while, um, even with the, the, my experience at the Defense Language Institute. And so um, they um, uh, said that if I, you know, could, I could reapply basically if I, um, after I got some community college credits. And so that day or the next day, I went to Coastal Carolina Community College on base in Camp Lejeune. I asked what classes they had that I couldn't enroll in immediately. I enrolled in an English and psychology class. I called back at the admissions officer at University of Michigan and say, hey, I'm enrolled. Um, so I'll keep you posted. Um, and then they, um, conditionally admitted me, um, if I could get A's in those classes, then they wouldn't revoke my admission to Michigan. So it was a very interesting process. Um, but I think it speaks to this idea of, you know, I wasn't trying to argue my way in. Um, it was just a matter of curiosity of like, okay, I was rejected. I want to, I want to figure that out. Right. What, what can I do to improve it? It certainly didn't feel good, um, to be rejected to state something obvious, um, but, you know, being able to be persistent in that way, I think was, was helpful. 
So all that's a little bit more context. So that's not actually answering your question. Um, when I when I showed up there, right? So I, I shared with you a bit before that I I intended, excuse me, I intended to separate um, I intended to separate my military life from my college life, right? That was kind of the, the vision that I had for it. Um, I um, came out of the military with some very strong feelings about our engagements abroad, um, and I needed to, to separate from that a little bit. Um, and it just didn't really end up fitting me, right? The people that I that I connected with, I went to a student veterans meeting, right, and I connected with somebody who's one of my best friends now. We still, you know, he's another Marine that served in a different unit. Um, I, I talk to him very, very regularly now, right? Ten years, ten plus years later. Um, because we immediately had a connection, right? We were both students here. We were both Marines to that point about military veterans, helping veterans. That's immediately what I felt, right? The other people asked me what classes I was taking and what, what I was majoring in. So um, that really meant a lot to me, right? To be able to find people that, you know, um, had been through this, that were a few steps ahead of me in the process that could say, oh, you're interested in that? Like, why don't you consider taking something from this professor, right? Like, that's really helpful, right? To be able to have people that can, that can steer you and also people that can help you decompress in the right ways, right? To show you, you know, so you're, that social aspect of college is really important. It was something that I really wanted. Um, and, you know, certainly there were, there's a, you know, vibrant social community in, uh, in Ann Arbor. Um, the veteran community was very active in that too. And that was, that was good, right? That was important to have that as part of my part of figuring out who I was post-military. Um, so I ended up majoring in international studies, which I think is somewhat um, cliche for, uh, uh, for, for veterans, but it was where I was interested, right? I mean, I was, I was actually really interested to study the process of Middle East politics and the history of Middle East politics okay. from an academic lens, as opposed right. to from the translation side. Um, and so I, you know, I really enjoyed it, um, even though sometimes it kind of pushed me into uh, just emphasizing my frustrations with, you know, military military engagements. So it was, a, it was an interesting process, but as part of, I think, the therapeutic process of thinking about um, what it actually meant, what my service meant, um, uh, and you know how I wanted to carry myself and how I, what I wanted to do with my life. So, yeah, I, that's great because you know I, I think exactly that you thinking through it right? It's helping you process it. I also think sometimes at the time, especially when we're even younger, uh, you know, even though you've experienced things in the military and you get out, you're still a lot younger. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we understand like we might now the value of being critical, right? right? You can be critical of your own experience and, and then use it as a way to process it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, just in college is, I, this, that's a good place for it, right? But but uh, for you to do that actively in that environment and, you know, on your own terms, like you said, if, if you didn't want to identify initially, you know, but then you found some people who, who could help you uh, through that, then if you're able to do that on your own terms, even better, right? Right. right? I, I agree. And, 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 and yeah, it, it doesn't, the same process doesn't apply to everybody, right? I mean, Absolutely. I think that people right. deal with this in very different ways and that's okay. And I think that's part of actually having a robust support community. That doesn't mean, you know, when, when I talk about um, the, the impact on me from other student veterans that were further ahead in the process, providing advice, that doesn't mean that I'm going to follow their path hundred percent of the time, right? My right. experience is different than theirs, but being able to talk to them and develop those, you know, candid relationships such that they can actually really tell me what has made them successful. And that I can just see it from our relationship is really, 
is a huge part of that. I mean, to, to bridge a bit to with Warrior Scholar Project, so much of our um, the success of our programs rests on the fellows who are alumni of our programs that then we they apply and they spend a summer with us, right? We do this really rigorous training and then they go from program to program to program mentoring students, right? Sure. Um, that's that's the key, right? All the other things that we do, all the skills, all of the the substance of the humanities, the STEM, the business curriculum, all of that is is great and necessary, but it would all fall flat um, if we didn't have those people that were really invested and that were achieving success in undergrad, right? Not unadulterated success to the point that there's no failures or there's nothing like that. Again, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of being candid about failures and about bumps in the road, but really being able to talk to students that are earlier on in the transition process and say, hey, like I'm at this school, you know, here's what I did that I would advise people to do generally. Here are some things that I did that I would steer you away from, right? right. Um, that's, that's huge. Um, and, and I think that this is in some ways tapping into the broader thing of mentorship, um, right? And this doesn't always, mentorship doesn't always have to be formally applying to a program and being paired with, you know, a, a, applying and then being uh, connected to somebody and establishing a weekly call. Mentorship can be much more informal. And I think that in many ways, that's where it's real is when those things happen naturally. Um, I'm a huge benefit of that. And I, I think that we as an organization really strive to facilitate that among the, the transitioning community. I love that. And, and I couldn't agree more. When when mentoring happens, like when it emerges organically, you know, like if I was like, oh, Ryan, I, I saw this and I thought about you, you know, and I thought you should know this person and you should look into this job. Those things, I, I do feel, I agree 100%. They just, they have so much weight, you know, mm -hmm. and so much value. And then I think someone's more apt to be like, okay, I'm going to go check this out because, right. you know, somebody stopped their day, thought about this, thought about the application of my life. It, it's worth some energy to look into. Right. So right. Uh, Ryan, just out of curiosity, any any Arabic at all in your undergrad? Did you take electives, minor? So I, um, you know, as I mentioned, my my non-scientific search criteria, um, <laughs> one of them was Arabic, right? So I, I right. applied to Michigan because they have um, what was referred to, I don't know if they still refer to it this, but it's as part of the flagship Arabic program. And the whole idea was to take people that were proficient and turn it into what they identified as business proficiency, which was really attractive to me, right? This idea of like, okay, I have this transferable skill. Um, I want to be able to turn this into, um, you know, into something that I could actually leverage in the corporate world, right? Or, you know, whatever, whatever I wanted to, or in the national security world, actually, because I was very interested in, um, in, in that area. Um, and it turns out that um, I did um, I did an interview with the, the gentleman who was running the flagship Arabic program um, at Michigan at the time, um, and it turns out that my my writing was quite lacking, and so my speaking and my uh, uh, my comprehension, my reading levels were um, uh, would have put me in the the classes that I wanted to be in, but because of my writing level, he wanted me to basically start over um, uh. with like Arabic 101 or 102, and I don't know maybe 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 he was right, but I I a little bit chip on my shoulder and I thought I'm not I'm not gonna not gonna go to, to 101 so I didn't um and so I ended up not taking any Arabic <laughs> okay. the, the okay. primary reason right one of my prime one of my three search criteria um uh in finding this school and I ended up not doing it um 
but the international studies major was one of the only ones that allowed you to transfer in more Arabic credits. So as, as a result of my time at, at Defense Language Institute, I had a, a, a mass a number of Arabic credits. So I was able to get my degree over the course of four very packed semesters. So that was kind of my goal. I didn't know what grad school I wanted to do, but I wanted to save GI Bill for grad school of some sort. So um, that's somewhat of how I ended up in, in international studies. But yeah, um, no, I didn't end up using it, um, uh, and it still comes up from time to time. Um, when I was in when I was in law school, I did a um, a, a legal aid internship, and one of the clients was um, an Egyptian woman who had um, who was going through some child custody proceedings in the United States. Okay. And so my my boss put me on the call. He's right. like, well. One Egyptian is very different than the than the dialect that I that I understood. Right. Two, at no point when I was in country was I translating things about child custody issues. So I'm sorry, but like if it's that's, this is gonna it's gonna be tough. So we you know we struggled through it, but um, yeah, it, it language definitely language definitely fades. But you know again like the 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 thing that led me to that institution it's really interesting because it, it, I didn't end up pursuing that, and yet you know, ended up being foundational for, for who I am and meeting student veterans and, and getting involved with student veterans advocacy through the SVA chapter there. And, you know, and, and, and the rest is, has led to where I am now. Well, and, you know, that's why I asked, because I know they have a, a, an awesome Arabic program, but, you know, I definitely understand you here. You've had all this real world experience. You've just been using it, you know, translating actively. And then someone suggests that you go back to one. I think that would be hard, you know, to be like a lift. Yeah. Bah, right, uh, right. There you go. See, you okay. got it. Yeah, conversations like so that right. would be, that would be tough, but um, you know, that's also exciting that you got to use your time in the Marine Corps and with the with the Defense Language Institute to use those credits to help move you along. So yeah. that's that's uh, amazing. Now, tell us about when you're doing your undergraduate and are you doing your undergraduate and you're starting to think like, I want to go to law school or yeah. how did that play out? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, so yes, the, cause I, I ended up taking the, the LSAT while I was, um, while I was still in, in undergrad, um, I knew I didn't want to go right away. Um, so I was, um, uh, my, my ideal plan was going to be to do a Fulbright, um, English teaching assistantship, um, um, in the Middle East. That's where I wanted to go to be able to actually kind of do a, in my mind, a culminating project. So I wrote um, an honors thesis on transitional justice in Iraq. And so I wanted to be able to kind of follow up on these things and be a civilian in the Middle East. Um, and I didn't actually end up getting that, um, but I was still interested in teaching. And so um, I had, a, 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 I knew that I likely wanted to go to law school. So I set the path to be able to do that. But at the same time, um, I applied for Teach for America um, and then ended up teaching um, high school in Detroit for a couple of years um, in the interim, which was uh, quite an experience for a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, I, I really enjoy instruction. I really enjoy teaching. And so I thought maybe I would want to do it at the high school level for, you know, um, in, in perpetuity. But so the, the graduate school side was something that I was just kind of, you know, ready in the event that I decided I didn't want to stay in the classroom, that I'd want to do something yeah. else. And then that became pretty clear that that's the route that I wanted to go um, <laughs> into my experience there. So yeah, a stint in a high school in Detroit. That, yeah, yeah. That, that might that might speed someone up. I, yeah. So so it's interesting, but you know that's also interesting because, um, there there is a high attrition rate among teachers. Period. Right. It just a general, and and it tends to be in that first five years anyway. So right. 
Right. Uh, well, and so I think that there's, so I serve on the military veteran council for teach for America now. And I think that there's, we talk about this, um, a decent amount, right. So in terms of recruitment, um, but also in terms of the, you know, really being able to develop that resiliency. So one of the reasons that a lot of teachers are well positioned to be able to jump in, um, as teachers, whether it's part of, of teach for America or, or otherwise is that teaching requires a tremendous amount of resilience. Right. And I think that people, have myself included have this sort of ideological pie in the sky thing about, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to change lives. And also at the end of the day, if you get summers, you know, when you, and they hand you your curriculum and you just teach from the curriculum, you know, okay. Like I, everybody was a student. And so everybody kind of imagines themselves. It's like, how hard was my teacher really working? And the answer is that the good ones were working their asses off, right? Like it's an incredibly challenging job. Um, and so I think that there's a role for, um, there, there's, there, there should be more and more pipelines actually for teachers um, to be coming from the veteran community, right? And I think that there's um, troops of teachers is actually, I think, going away. But I think that there's some other opportunities for, um, there's some other programs that are trying to be able to actively recruit. And I think that that's great. I think that that's actually really important because students need people that are willing to show up every day and are willing to work really hard for it. Right. And so I think that, you know, it was a tremendous learning experience for me. Um, you know, and, and I was, I was, I was an adequate teacher, right. Um, uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a phenomenal teacher, right. Some of my colleagues were phenomenal. Uh, my wife is a teacher and she's, she's a phenomenal teacher. She's the sort of person that's like in her zone when she's there. Right. And, um, you know, it took me a few bites at the apple. Same thing is true actually for my military experience. Right. I was, I was an adequate linguist, right. I was, I, I was, I was adequate. I wasn't phenomenal. Some of my colleagues really were. And I think that it's okay to recognize sometimes that you're not in the best, it's not the best utilization of your talents or your, you know, there's more that you could be doing. And so, you know, a lot of that's what led me to, to my job now, you know, again, I think that so much of what we do at Warrior Scholar Project is focused on really trying to think about how the curriculum side of it on the education component, right? They are academic boot camps. Um, and so even in my role, you know, at the, at the, the, the management level, I'm still constantly engaged in conversations with folks about how we're developing our curriculum. And, and I'm really thankful for my experience of, you know, learning a bit about pedagogy and that crash course of uh, the whirlwind of, of, of serving in that high school for a couple of years. Right. Right. Absolutely. I can see. Yeah. It, it almost seems like you would have to have that right the the understanding of curriculum curriculum development delivering of of lessons and real right. pedagogy right 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 so um law school let's talk about that where did you go to sure. law school university of virginia oh okay excellent excellent so um out uh, out in thomas jefferson territory that's right. Wonderful, wonderful Charlottesville. Yeah, that place uh, swept me off my feet. Um, it's it's beautiful. Um, we, we, my wife and I love it out there. So absolutely. Uh, when I was a child, I lived in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And, uh, some of my some of my best memories were from driving out uh, to the campus at University of Virginia, and you know to to Monticello and to all that. Absolutely. That's right. Time in that area is awesome. It's just beautiful. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't, it, I wasn't actually, I mean, I, I sort of blanketed the top law schools with my applications and which is kind of what, what a lot of people end up doing, but I wasn't originally thinking about University of Virginia. Um, and then when I was really fortunate to be admitted there, I had a, a friend that um, was down there and he said, okay, like you go through the admitted students program, but then let me show you what Charlottesville has to offer. I and mean, we went to a, a hike 
um, to a, a waterfall that was 30 minutes away from, you know, from the law school. And then we went to a, a brewery and watched the sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it's like, okay, I, this, I can do I'm this for sold. a few years. <laughs> and it was a two-person decision. My wife and I were, um, our, our wedding um, was at that time, we, had, we weren't married yet, but we were getting married a week before law school. So I brought her out um, a month or so later and did the same tour and she had the exact same reaction of like, oh, this is, this is a good um, yeah, I, I, I loved it. Um, I, um, I'm, um, UVA was uh, very much the right fit uh, for me. That uh, they have the reputation of being a little bit more, um, a little bit less competitive, and a little bit more of a relaxed atmosphere among the student body. Um, um, I think the students kind of self-select there for for that reason, um, and I think it was really true. Um, one of the um, a faculty member that I met actually at Admitted Students Weekend, I was evaluating some options in New York and other places, and he said, "Look, when." When a, when a class ends at a big law school in New York, everybody has to do an hour and a half commute home in different directions, right? When a class ends at UVA, somebody's going to, the professor's not going to mind spending 10 or 15 minutes talking to you because they live 10 minutes away and you probably, you know, live, you know, a five minute walk away, right? And I, I, I that was really, that really stuck with me. And I think that that's really true. Um, that was very much the experience that people were, were seemed to be very happy to be there, both the students um, and the faculty and, and staff. And um, yeah, it was just, it was a very, a very positive experience, obviously beyond challenging, right? Um, you know, way out of my league in terms of the brilliant people that are the, the brilliant people that are around me. Um, and it still is very competitive, even in a more relaxed atmosphere, but um, no, it's a very, it's a very special time. I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, um, for, for UVA in particular for, for law school. That's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad you had a, such a positive experience overall and, you know, and, and you gained so much from it. So you, you know, you're in law school and tell us about next steps. How, how does, how does, how does your background in higher education, how does that come to meet the Warrior Scholar Project? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, so I guess, so uh, on the, on the law school side, first of all, um, I was doing, um, at, at these at large law schools, there is a large push towards um, big law, right? So towards sort of like the, the large national corporate law firms. Okay. Um, that's where things are geared. That's where career services are geared. And so from from ba basically day one, right, they are, you're, you're supposed to be thinking about this because the process actually starts um, in your second semester as a first year law student, you start preparing your applications for the summer. Um, and then before your second year starts, you go through this gauntlet of interviews with law firms to get your internship for the summer in between your second and third year. And if the economy is doing well, in most cases, folks will get an offer to um, start at that law firm after law school, which basically means you're trying to make the decisions for where you'll be after you graduate from your third year of law school while you're in your second semester of your first year, right? So there's there's a really interesting um, arc there. And it's compelling, right? From job from a job security standpoint, right? The idea of being able to get that type of thing. So um, so it wasn't my original intention, right? I went in there very public service focused. Another reason that I was interested in UVA was they have um, a strong national security program. Um, they're close uh, two and a half hours from DC. So there's a lot of opportunities for internships and externships. Um, kind of similar to Arabic, I actually didn't end up doing anything with national security when I was there, right? I took other classes and got interested in other things. Um, but, um, but I did end up um, moving along what somebody described to me as this big law treadmill, right? Where you really actually have to take affirmative steps to get off of it. Otherwise, you're just going to be kind of pulled towards this, okay. towards this path. Okay. So 
There's a lot of reasons for it. Law school is very expensive, so you can pay off a lot of debt. Also, working at a law firm, right, is a really good test of your ability to be able to hack it at a very fast-paced environment, right? right. Um, you work through, I was, some, you know, I ended up working as a litigation associate at a, at a large law firm. You churn through a lot of different types of cases, right? There's a lot of sort of personnel sides of how you pitch yourself to various partners to work on cases. Um, you're never really working on the same thing two days in a row. So it can be really interesting in that way. Um, it's very tough. And I worked with brilliant people at that law firm. Um, having said all of that, it didn't, um, it didn't resonate with me, right? And that took me some time to really be able to come to terms with. So along the way, all the way back from 2013, when I was, when I was um, uh, in my second year of teaching high school, um, a, a friend from my old unit told me about Warrior Scholar Project, which had just started at Yale. Um, and they were entering their second year. Um, I couldn't go through it because I already had my undergraduate degree, which is one of our, uh, one of our eligibility criteria. Um, but I went out and saw it in its second year in 2013. And immediately blown away. Um, um, Charles Hill, who actually um, just passed away a couple months ago, um, uh, but he's a phenomenal professor at Yale. He was leading this discussion and the level of discourse from these veterans that they were having with this world-class professor was like, however they facilitated this conversation, like this is something, right? I want to be a part of this. And so I worked with a group to launch that at University of Michigan in 2014, and that was my part-time involvement for a number of years, right? When I was going through law school, whatever I would do for an internship, I would carve out a couple of weeks to go to University of Michigan, and I would, I would help run this program at, at Michigan. And so when I was at the, when I was at the law firm, um, about a year into it, I met up with one of the, the WSP founders, um, uh, Jesse Rising, who's a, a phenomenally talented guy that has an incredible story. Um, uh, but I met up with him for old time's sake, and, and we basically started talking about an opportunity for me to come on board um, full time, and I didn't, I didn't hesitate. So I intended to be at the, at the law firm for the foreseeable future, and then eventually to turn that into a public service career in law. Um, but there's something about this work that really resonated with me. And, um, and, and so I, I, you know, I, I jumped on board, and, and that was into the COO role back in, uh, in 2018. Wow. Okay. Okay, but it sounds like you did you did have an experience, you know, seeing and and knowing about it. But it's it also sounds like to me like it's one of those things you hear about, and some people experience, some people don't. But it's one of those things when it presented to yourself, uh, you just knew, right? And right. That's, that's great. I think that's right. And well, I think that like you know a, a big part of. Um, sometimes, so I'm, I'm, I'm extremely happy with my current job, right? Like there's, there's no other job. There's literally no other job that I would rather have. Right. And that's a very privileged thing that's to be amazing. able to say. That's and so sometimes if I talk to the, about that with people, I, I, I wish that there was like a blueprint that I could provide to somebody about like, here's what I would, here's, here's what I did do this. Like I talked before about like this idea of mentorship and being able to say, here's the path. I, I can't do that. What I can say is just some, some, some things that I've learned along the way. And one of those is responding to opportunities when they present themselves, right? And that when something comes up and it feels right, right? This may be a little bit new agey, but I actually think that there's actually something that's really important to this, right? If it, if it resonates with who you are as a person, then it listen to that, right? To the extent that you can, to the extent that you have the, I mean, you can imagine financially, quite different working for a large national law firm and coming on board for a nonprofit. Right. But I evaluated this with my wife. Like, you know, we were, we were, she was, she was incredibly supportive. I was fortunate to be able to make this, make this decision. Um, but it, I, I would, I haven't regretted that for a moment. 
right? No matter how hard, and this job has been, has had some challenges, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a lot, right? There's, a, there's enormous things that we're working on together. There's a lot of really big, important problems to solve. Um, but I, you know, I love it even when it's really hard. Um, and so, you know, that to me is a really important thing of listening to those kinds of opportunities when they present themselves. And the other thing I guess I would say is, you know, to go back to the point that I made before about the fact that I was an adequate teacher and I was an adequate linguist. I think I was an adequate, um, you know, doing an adequate job as, as, as a litigation associate, right? Um, and I think that in all of those things, right, even if you, even if you don't necessarily have to fail for you to be able to identify of like, okay, like I want to find the thing that like I am actually really good at. And I think each one of those components where I felt myself as being an adequate contributor, right here, I actually feel like I'm, I'm particularly well suited for this, which is part of why I feel like this is the job that I want to be in, right? And so um, having those sort of honest conversations with yourself um, I think is really important, um, uh, you know, finding out what you do have going for you and also the things that, you know, it's just not, not everything necessarily has to be a good fit. Um, that's, and, and being honest is really important, honest and intentional. So. Right. Well, and, and obviously, you know, it resonated and, and you felt that and you understood your intuition so much that, you know, you just mentioned that you went on in the COO role but now here you are CEO. Yeah. So you, you know, you even bit off more. I mean, you've sure. been off a lot before, but now you've got more now. Sure. sure. So you, you continued with it. And I think that is uh, that, that, that speaks volumes, you know, I'm fortunate. Yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate to work with, I'm fortunate that the board trust and trust me with this position. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that, that means a lot in some ways going from COO to CEO is interesting because you go from one boss to 13, um, you know, um, but, uh, you know, but I, again, like I, I, I love that. And I think that there's a whole actually speaking of that, right. I mean, every position holds some different things that I had never before had to really work for, you know, work for a, a, a board directly and think about how, how you manage those relationships and everything that you expect out of that. And, it, but right. those are really exciting challenges. And so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. That's actually another example, right. I mean, even though I said yes to the COO role, I guess it wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would say yes to other opportunities, but when it was there, even though it's a change of what my, my duties were to some extent in the organization, right. Listening to that and saying, okay, like I want to grow in this way and, and I want to be able to find ways to excel in this position too. So, um, challenging, but they're the right types of challenges that I want to be applying my, my time and efforts to. That's amazing. I love hearing it. Absolutely love hearing it. Let me ask you one, one last question about, sure. about this. Uh, if you could, if you could just overall, if there was one thing, if you could say, Luke, this is my favorite thing about my job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, it's hard for me to say anything other than the fact that I get to interact with and help transitioning veterans on a daily basis. I mean, that's like, that's, that's what it's all about for me, right? Like no matter what my role is, no matter how much time I have to spend on other aspects of the organization, um, very few days go by when I'm not interacting with some, somebody, somebody in our alumni crew or somebody, um, of a, of a prospective student. Um, even if that's just through exchanging, you know, comments on social media. And I, I really try and be intentional about staying connected to the folks that we serve. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's an incredible privilege, right? Um, uh, and, and, and again, that gives purpose to the hours you spend in the budget, right? It gives, it, 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 all of those things matter because you don't lose sight of, of who you're actually really working with. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a tremendous, a tremendous privilege. And the other aspect is that we are, so we're about to enter our 10th year anniversary. Um, um, this June is the 10th year anniversary of our, of our first ever program at Yale. Um, and 
I mean, really, we're just getting started, right? I mean, we've had 1,500 people go through our programs. We're on 21 campuses this summer. Um, and there is, um, we, we, did, we went through a very rigorous strategic planning process in 2020. We have so many things that are in the works um, to service our alumni, to grow our offerings, to diversify our offerings, to reach more underrepresented veterans. To, uh, there, there are so many things that we have going. And so that also gets me really fired up, right? That like, yes, there's a lot that we're currently doing really well, but just like the thought that I get to work on these cool, big projects is awesome. Right. Absolutely. So meaningful. Well, and it's so meaningful. You, you have that connection and see that success, but now you're, you know, what you're telling me here is the success is leading to lots of growth. And yeah, that's, that's, that's exciting for me to hear. I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously with that, there's, there's more work, but Ryan, what do you, what do you really see in the near future for yourself uh, with, within this context of being the CEO of, of the Warrior Scholar Project? What do you, what do you have on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I think for 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 me personally, I think I'm interested in continuing to develop my skill set in this role, right? I think that there's we talked about mentors before, you know, I'm very interested in finding people that are a few steps ahead of where I am as a leader and where we are as an organization and being able to figure out what works for them, right? I think that sometimes everybody writes a book at some stage in their life when they're, you know, they're thinking back in 20 years ago when I made these decisions and like those things are helpful, but I really want to find the folks like I'm, I'm interested in, you know, we have 16 full-time staff members. We hire, or, or we're about to, our full-time uh, in, this, in the summer jumps to about 50 people because we hire, um, we hire 30 some odd um, alumni fellows um, to, that we work with. So I'm interested in finding organizations that are sort of a, of a comparable size in or outside of the veteran landscape and really being able to, to find out what the best practices are for their growth, right? And I think that for me personally, you know, for the things that I do well, I'm aware of a number of things that I consistently need to be improving on, um, both in terms of, of leading the team, in terms of fundraising, in terms of developing partnerships. Um, I think there are some really interesting opportunities for veterans and for veteran organizations right now with, uh, with what the, the current administration is putting out. Um, and so finding ways for us to be able to deftly, you know, navigate that and, and take advantage of it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to be here, right. You know, my, my earlier comment around the fact that this is, you know, the most professionally satisfied that I've ever been. And that I, I, I want to be here, but that, that certainly doesn't mean that I want to be here and stay stagnant. Right. I want to continue right. to push myself and find ways to be able to grow, you know, our team, um, and, and all of our offerings. And, and I think always keeping an eye on the ball for the folks that are the end user, right. The students, right. And, and, and keeping that connection and understanding how can we grow, our organization and our services such that we're doing even better, that we're preparing them, that we're building that confidence, that we're doing even more for them. So there's, there's a lot of challenges um, in doing that. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride. And so is our team. I'm like, our, we have an incredible team of people that work on it. So that's, that's a cool opportunity. I love it. I love it. Ryan, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and sharing so much about the Warrior Scholar Project. Absolutely, Luke. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I, I love what you're doing with the podcast and I'll, I'll, you got you to gotta subscribe right of me. So I'll, I'll keep listening. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, and I have been joined today by the CEO of the Warrior Scholar Project, Ryan Pavel. 
We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.